So if you've been following along, I know you're wondering, what was that? We've been in Revelation. Why are we watching a video about Joel? Uh, Joel's uh, visions factor into our next chapter in Revelation in some pretty significant ways. John borrows from that vision heavily. He reinterprets some elements of it. Uh, but also there is this transition that's really important, a transition from sort of natural disaster to um, uh, national aggression and disaster that results from that. Uh, as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop focusing on some stories that I read about my home state of California. You know I'm from California, most of you. Uh, I'm sorry. But in my home state of California, uh, you know, there's, there's been this drought. Really the whole southeast uh, of the U.S. has been in drought conditions. And you've probably heard, if you've watched the media about this at all, you've probably heard that it is the worst drought in 1,200 years. I somewhat take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but the alarmists among us, the climate alarmists in government, in media, in culture, are almost giddy about this drought uh, because it's an opportunity for them to say, we warned you. We, we were telling you. We, to we told you this was coming. And particularly when you look at the record of, uh, of climate alarmism over the last 30 years and all the failed predictions, they really get excited when they have one that seems to have come, uh, come to fruition. But there's a problem brewing already, and that is that in the midst of this 1,200-year legacy drought, the southeast during this monsoon season is the wettest that it has been in a decade. And this sort of begins to undermine the narrative, and that's sort of frustrating. And so there were some stories that came out this week. We've been dealing with what, what, we're, what we're now calling a mega drought, because that makes it more intimidating. Now we're faced with the possibility of mega floods. Dun, dun, dun. This is going to be the next big thing. And I thought, why is this story coming? We've had 20 years of drought in Southern California and Arizona and New Mexico. Why is this story coming out right now? Well, as for one thing, it's about this monsoon season that has just, it, you, you might have seen the pictures of the casinos in Las Vegas flooding. Um, doesn't actually take that much to flood Las Vegas because they're just, it's not really set up for all that water. But, uh, but there's another reason. It's, it's also because it's, it's widely expected that the pattern in the Pacific that you hear about from time to time, the El Nino and La Nina and El Nino, uh, is going to switch to an El Nino. Now, if you're not from that area, you might not appreciate that what El Nino means in the southeastern United States is flooding. All right? So what we're doing, essentially, is shifting the message from mega drought to mega flood because the weather pattern is shifting. So here's how this works. If it doesn't rain, it's because of climate change. If it rains, it's because of climate change. 
This is what we call hedging our bets. No matter which way it goes, disaster follows. And so I thought, I'm just going to look it up. I'm going to look it up because that's what I do. So I pulled up the NOAA data. That is drought and floods over the last century, actually since 1895. Uh, there's a lot of them. Pretty consistent, actually. And so even if our most recent drought in the southeast uh, could be called could, could be called uh, uh, significant, could be called unusual, could be called exceptional. The one thing we cannot call it is unprecedented. This is the way it's been working in Southern California for a long time. And I have lived there through both extremes. When we were in Southern California, we went through heat waves and a lack of rain. And then the next year, we were flooded and you couldn't hardly get to university, which is where I was at the time. Well, what is, why am I bringing all this up other than it's my home state and I have to work it into a sermon every once in a while? Because there are empires in our world today that are trying to craft their version of utopia and their version of utopia is meant to end the effects that all of this is supposedly going to bring. It's meant to, meant to head off the poverty, the famine, the injustice, the societal collapse that inevitably will happen if we don't uh, act now to address our problems. And in the pursuit of heading off poverty, famine, injustice, and societal collapse, we're going to take actions to ensure poverty, famine, injustice, and societal collapse. Now, my point is not that we shouldn't worry about the environment. Uh, we're supposed to be stewards of the environment. That's, that's part of our calling as God's creation, to be stewards of this world. But alarmism is not stewardship. And here is the heart of the problem. The empires of the world always imagine that they are the solution to the world's brokenness. And in assuming the role of being the solution to the world's brokenness, those empires become the world's brokenness. This is the context. This is, this is where the story uh, goes next in Revelation. From chapter 8, verse 13, as I watched, I heard the eagle that was flying over the midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. In other words, the final three trumpets promise woe to the enemies of Christ. The first four trumpets you'll remember, brought on exceptional natural disasters. God removing his controlling, limiting hand and allowing natural chaos. This eagle serves as the messenger in this particular passage to let us know that the next three trumpets 
will be something completely different. John's vision basically transitions here from a disaster movie to a horror flick. It gets dark and it gets ugly real fast. And I will confess to you that the darker it gets, the more difficult it is for us to interpret what's happening. Let me be clear about the conclusions that I share with you. There are other views, and I'm not necessarily saying I'm right. I'm just uh, sticking with, first of all, what we have a precedent for in earlier scripture, and also assuming that the simplest explanation is usually the best explanation. Chapter 9, starting with verse 1. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months and the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. So the fifth trumpet unleashes a plague of locusts. And of course, we have that tie once again to the plagues of Egypt but also very much this imagery of the day of the Lord that we read about in the prophet Joel, this tiny little minor prophet, only three chapters long, that doesn't get much airtime, but plays a big role in this passage of Revelation. And at first, because we're talking about locusts, it seems like, seems like maybe John is talking to us about another natural disaster, another plague, but there's something unique about this. Somehow, for instance, the faithful are spared this plague. It's not explained to us how that, how that works. Perhaps it is uh, supernatural. We do see in the plagues of Egypt that the Israelites, at least most of the time, are spared the plagues that rain down upon Egypt. We don't know exactly how that works either. But also, uh, these are not normal locusts. They don't attack grass or trees or plants. They attack the people. The fifth and sixth plagues appear to be geopolitical. Perhaps the people are spared simply because they do not rely, do not put their faith in the object of God's judgment. Passage goes on to say this, sorry, verse 7, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. 
Here's some weird locusts. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of men, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as a king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The locusts are often today equated with the machinery of war. But we start with this imagery of locusts, quickly sort of uh, devolves from natural disaster into some kind of um, military invasion. Some readers think that this sounds something like a military attack helicopter. I don't know. But it suggests that the, inva- the invasion is, is not a natural one, but it is a military empire that is loosed by divine decree. The important thing here is that this dark, destructive evil will rise from the earth. This, uh, people get caught up on this, uh, uh, Apollyon and Abaddon, both of those just mean destroyer. The, the, the implication here is that uh, an empire of the earth serving under the God of this world is going to cause widespread destruction. Continuing in verse 13, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So the sixth trumpet releases a previously bound army. And I know it sounds, when we first start reading this verse, it sounds like the angels themselves are the instrument of all of this death. But as John continues, he makes it very clear that it is this, it is this military force, this national force that has been bound up. And the implication here is that these four angels have been holding this force in place, keeping them from advancing until this specific time has come about. Now, all this is very weird and very difficult. But it also follows a pretty common prophetic biblical pattern. And that is that God allows pagan nations to overrun his enemies, even when those enemies are his own people sometimes. And then he allows another nation to overrun that nation So nobody gets off (laughs) scot-free. Whoever is guilty is uh, facing God's judgment at one point or another. Goes on to say the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, uh, having heads with which they inflict injury. Whew. 
This is an army of immeasurable size and terror. The literal number, remember that numbers are not often literal in Revelation, but the literal number given here is 200 million, an army of 200 million, which is generally thought to be more than the population of the world at the time that this revelation was given. In apocalyptic terms, it is simply an immeasurable military empire that is unleashed to do damage to the world. In historic terms, we've witnessed this repeatedly. Times when some massive military empire rises to power and inflicts damage on the world. And it seems insurmountable, but it is limited to a time. And even as we watch this rise and fall, we know that empires run their course. Now, Revelation enthusiasts often equate these with modern nations. When I say Revelation enthusiasts, I would like to call them theologians, but they're not. Uh, they're just people who love to read Revelation and come up with modern uh, tie-ins and, and come to conclusions and, and, of course, tell us that the return of Christ is imminent, which it may very well be. One of these days, some of them are going to be right. But I am not a Revelation enthusiast. I love the book. I love the hope that it preaches. But I am not trying to tie this into um, modern events. Currently, among these folks, I will tell you, just reading things online, uh, currently, for at least the second army, China seems to be the front runner. They're, they're because, because they could raise an army of 200 million. That's, that's basically the argument. And they're in the East, so it kind of works. But that has changed over time. When I was uh, in high school, it was the Soviet Union. Was everything, in, everything in Revelation was, had to do with the Soviet Union. What we need to understand is that the churches in Asia Minor, the first people who read this letter, probably did the same thing. As a matter of fact, in some ways, they had a more legitimate interpretation than any of the modern enthusiasts do. The long golden hair of the northern barbarians was rather exceptional. See, the Roman Empire, folks said, oh, soldiers kept their hair short, and it was all dark. And so these uh, golden-haired northerners with their long hair, um, that's the imagery that gets invoked by this first army. And then and then there is this second army, which they, uh, they would have probably associated with the Parthians. The Parthians had an uneasy peace with the empire of Rome. And the sort of official dividing line between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire was the Euphrates River. And so here is this military force held back at the Euphrates River. The Parthians were known as very fierce warriors, and the only empire that Rome was significantly concerned about 
in its heyday. Parthians were also uh, known, their archers were known for the skill of being able to shoot backwards as they rode their horses away. And they actually defeated the Romans on a couple of battles uh, by doing just that, by retreating and shooting arrows backward at the Roman army. So that imagery of their tails being able to do as much damage as their heads would have resonated with these, these people living in Asia Minor. The point is not that their interpretation is right and that other interpretations are wrong. My point is that whatever interpretation we have might not be the only one. And it might not even be the only time that these things have happened. In fact, the empires of the world are constantly shifting the map around this way. And I don't even think that identifying the armies in the, that, that, that are presented here is the key to our understanding the passage. I think the key is at the end of the chapter, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. See, the key to this passage is the lack of repentance. That's, that's what it's all about. The blast of the trumpet is a call to repentance. These natural disasters, these military campaigns are a call for us to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, and it doesn't happen. There is a stunning lack of humility and self-awareness. And it is this, this arrogance that drives the judgment narrative forward. In fact, perhaps what distinguishes the final fulfillment of these prophecies from previous fulfillments of these prophecies is that in this case, Humanity learns nothing. See, what's consistent through all of this narrative is the sovereignty of God. God is always in control. Always in control of nature, always in control of the empires of men. Whether they know it or not, God is always sovereign. It is their failure to recognize that sovereignty and repent of their sins that makes this final judgment so problematic. The first four trumpets unleash these unprecedented natural disasters. But what is the response? Humanity worships the creation rather than the creator. That's how they respond. Even as God shakes us loose from this illusion that we have that we can actually control the environment around us, humanity continues to worship beasts, wood, stone, or even our own wisdom. We invest our hope in created things rather than the Creator. And as its self-appraisal and its arrogance grows, 
humanity seeks for itself power. And so these two more trumpets unleash empires to destroy one another. There are three empires in this story. Four, really, if you think about it. There is the empire that the people start with. There is the first army that comes and destroys that. There's a second army that comes and destroys them. And we're still waiting for that final trumpet. John is going to push the pause button again and make us wait a little longer. We're still waiting for that final trumpet to see what the final resolution to all of this will be. What it reveals is the futility of the nation's lust for power and conquest. The empires only rise for a time and then they fall at the will of God's hand. And it is even as God reveals the sovereignty that he has over the armies of men, humanity serves empires rather than the kingdom. See, there's some things that are, were true then and continue to be true today, although in some ways in our culture they're more nuanced. But the kings and the rulers of this world will seek raw power above all else. You can count on it. You can bank on it. And if they obtain it, they will quickly become desperate, despots and tyrants. Tyranny will lead to revolution, and revolution, more often than not, will lead to another empire. So, the best systems of human government do two things. They recognize the sovereignty of God, and they seek to limit the powers of those who govern. This is what's so remarkable about the American experiment. So remarkable about our Constitution, it does both those things. Acknowledges the sovereignty of God and seeks to limit the powers of anybody who enters into government service. But notice that those who govern us in generous estimate of their own wisdom and understanding are always seeking to circumvent the limitations that we have imposed upon them. Now, in a free society, we have free speech, and we have protests, and we have elections, and through all of these things, we can seek to undermine tyrants and despots. We can seek temporary relief, and we should. But let me say this. One thing is certain. Those who occupy the seats of power will nearly always seek their own will and will use whatever means at their disposal in order to get it. With few exceptions, those who seek to use the empire become instruments of the empire. The revelation principle that we have employed already, though, is that the empire is not as it appears. It's not what it appears. It's not all-powerful. And if it does purport to offer us 
peace and security, that will crumble as well. And yet, as we observe the rise and the falls of the empires of men over the course of history, do we meet that knowledge with repentance? Revelation suggests that before the last trumpet is blown, humanity will once again witness violent corruption of empire. It will witness the sovereignty of God in defeating that empire, and yet after all is said and done, it will still cling to the empire, will still cling to its idolatry, will still cling to its sin. Folks, that is the battlefield upon which the church exists. That's the battlefield where we live today. And Revelation, ultimately, as we read in the the letters to the seven churches, Revelation is a call to the churches to reinvigorate their faith so they can be overcomers, so they can be victorious in the coming tribulations. That message resonates forever. And maybe particularly today. Because I don't think it's too hard to imagine that tribulation is coming. Jesus says, you want to follow me? There's a couple of things you've got to do first. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. What does that really mean? first of all, I've got to get myself out of the way. I I have to stop assuming that it's about me, that I am, in fact, the center of the universe. I have uh, have goats at my house. Often, as I'm watching them, I often think about that analogy of the sheep and the goats. I've never had sheep. I don't know if sheep are any better. Goats are incredibly selfish animals. They do whatever they want regardless of what you think about it, even if you're trying to protect them, even if you're trying to care for them, they're going to do whatever they want. We got goats in order to eat down plants around the property that we didn't want, poison ivy mostly. Eventually they ate it down. But you know these uh, services they have where they'll uh, rent you a flock of goats so you can like eat down a They eat down around airports and stuff like that. They're supposed to mow everything down. We watched our goats for a long time. We thought, how does that work? Because they're such selective eaters. They go, they don't eat what you want them to eat. They get into everything else. So I did a little research, and this is what I found out. The way that you get goats to eat everything in a given area is you have to have a lot more goats. Because it's not their appetite that drives them to eat everything. It's the belief that the goat next to them is going to get something that they then won't be able to have. The whole process is driven by selfishness. So I think about Jesus separating the sheep from the goats. I think, what is he saying about us? Our whole process, our whole culture is driven by the belief that if you gain something, I'll lose something. We're all competing. The kingdom of God is supposed to be completely different. I'm supposed to give up on myself. 
and trust in God. And secondly, I'm supposed to take up my cross, which means that just as Jesus did, I take up a burden for the kingdom. I take up a burden to grow it, to see it develop, to see it extended in the world. We have a desperate need for both of these things to happen right now in the church. For people to set aside their personal ambition and to adopt the ambitions of the kingdom. And I'm concerned. I'm concerned because as we see this rising tide of tribulation, as we see a culture that is at war with the truth, as we see the light of the gospel being dismissed as archaic traditionalism, we're also witnessing a version of Christianity in the church that claims that we can be followers of Jesus without denying ourselves and without taking up our cross. A version that is rooted in self. It is self-centered. It allows us to maintain the illusion of control. It even affords us the opportunity to continue worshiping the idols of the culture and to participate completely in the empire and still claim that we're followers of Jesus. And so I have to say this morning that without self-denial and cross-carrying, the church is just another empire. The church cannot be the kingdom without these things. Without me getting myself out of the way and embracing the mission of Christ, the church can't be the church. It's just another empire. It's just a selfish, elitist collective of people vying for control and demanding our own way. And often doing that while arrogantly assuming that demanding my way is, in fact, doing the work of the true church. We simply cannot afford to function like this anymore. Culturally, we can't afford it. Missionally, we can't afford it. And here in this congregation, we won't have it. See, the real work of disciples is welcoming. We welcome Jesus in to our churches, to our homes, to our relationships, to our lives. We welcome him to reign. We welcome him to lead. We welcome him to receive the first of us rather than what's left of us at the end of the day. And having welcomed him in to welcome the world to know him. I was watching this movie last week uh, on uh, Amazon, some of you may have seen it, called uh, 13 Lives, Ron Howard film. It's a pretty good, enjoyable movie, disaster movie, sort of. These uh, 12 soccer players and their coach in Thailand get trapped in a cave because the monsoons come and start filling up the cave with water, and they're way, way back in there. And I'm watching this, I'm, I'm very tense as I'm watching it. Sort of on the edge of my seat, 
And everything about this feels to me very familiar, and I was trying to sort of process with myself why that is. See, because I never played soccer. Uh, honestly, when I was a kid, no Americans played soccer. I never played soccer, so I didn't really understand that piece of it. Um, I've been in caves, but I'm a little bit claustrophobic. So the idea of going through those caves where the passages get really narrow, not for me. Not my thing. But as I watch all of this play out, and I'm like, what is it about this that feels familiar? And I watch thousands of people in the film, they, they show, this is all based on a true story, thousands of people gather there to support this effort. There's a point at which all the local farmers, uh, in, in order, to, in order to, to aid the rescue effort, allow their floods, their crops for the years to be flooded and destroyed so they can pump more water out of the cave. I see all of this over-the-top effort, all of this energy, all these thousands of people engaged in the effort to save these 13 lives. I think that's why this feels familiar. Because we encounter people every week who are trapped in a life without God. And we have lost sight of the desperation required in order to save them. We have lost sight of how critical this is, that it is a life and death effort. There's a point at which, as they're implementing their rescue plan, they say, but if we get this wrong, if we get this wrong, these children will die. And they move forward because they know they will die if they don't. Folks, we can try a lot of things as a church here, and a lot of things will probably fail. But if we talk ourselves out of witnessing to this community for the kingdom of Christ, if we talk ourselves out of trying to reach the lost in this community with the message of the gospel, because we might fail, we need to understand that we've already failed. We have to be about the work of the kingdom. We don't have a choice. It is not an option for us to pursue any other goal. And I know that we have, out of a, an abundance of love for other people, we have sometimes allowed the squeaky voices who want to demand their way to have their way because we, we want everybody to be happy. We want there to be peace. And some of you have lamented the fact that we've stopped doing that. That we've stopped placating everybody and trying to keep everybody happy. It's not that I want people to be unhappy. It's that I want Jesus Christ to be satisfied with the effort. <laughs>